uh, number six in our Back to the Start series, and it's the fifth on Jonah. Maybe we could have a verse from the Bible up here. We're going to start with one verse of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Oh, that's Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. It's a good verse, but not the one I've got here to start with. Never mind. Um, can we have Jonah chapter 4, 11, or shall I just read it out? Oh, too... I don't think I've got that one anywhere in my notes. Perhaps I should be preaching a different sermon this morning, and God is trying to tell me something. Okay. Let's, um... Luke chapter 9, Okay. Well, you know what? When I was teaching, I had this terrible dream, and it was a nightmare, and I dreamt that all my notes had gone wrong and that um, it was all going badly in front of the students. When I woke up, I found I was there in front of the students. No, not really. Okay, I'm going to start with Jonah chapter 4, and we'll let these guys catch up. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Let's pray. Father, thank you. You want to speak to us today through the Bible, through your word, through your Holy Spirit who's here with us. You want to speak to our hearts and our minds, changing our thinking, changing our hearts, and changing the people we are inside. Lord, I pray for radical change and transformation in our lives right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this series, we've been looking at a number of things. We looked at back to the start, what it looks like for me. We had Rice's prophecy, which directed us to really go back to the start and also um, to take on board and take to heart the book of Jonah, the whole book. We've been doing that week by week. We started with Jonah's double vision. We said if you have two visions and you try to put one set of glasses on top of the old one, you will get very confused and be in lots of trouble. We had a wake-up call from God to his vision, uh, not to be asleep in the bottom of the boat like Jonah was, the vision to win multitudes, how to win a city, the vision for prayer. He said the vision person conquers everything in prayer first. That is an awesome thing to be able to do. And today's title is this, The Heart of Compassion. The Heart of Compassion. We read in the verse I just read out, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Now, just to remind you, and if you've not been here to help you understand, Jonah was a prophet. He spoke from God. And his job, his ministry, was to tell the king of his area of Israel to build defenses because the people of Nineveh and their empire were hostile towards them. And if they didn't build up their defenses, those people would come get them and there would be all kinds of problems as a result of that. And then, is that somebody? Oh, okay. I thought that was on my slides here and I was, uh, <laughs> perhaps I should have been singing to you at this point, but so you haven't been that bad, so I won't do that. And Jonah had spent his life building up walls and defenses to keep these people out. That was his first vision from God. Then God comes and gives him a completely new, brand new vision, which is to step out from behind your defenses, go to the very place of the, where those people live, and help me rescue them. Because I am a God who saves. And I have a heart for those people. In the verse we read, it said... Um, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? The, the original word that's used there means to look on with compassion. Isn't it right? Shouldn't I look on these people with compassion? So that's our title today, The Heart of Compassion. Now, one of the former pastors that we, we used to um, be in church with he told us something that happened to him one day. He was in those old-fashioned days of people at baths. Do you ever take a bath with all showers today? And he was taking a bath. And if, you, if you've never taken a bath in the last few years, then I'm just going to tell you what a bath is like. And maybe if the people want to move away from you a little bit. But seriously, he, he, he did what 
a lot of us experience. He turned the taps on, started to let the water run, and two things happened. First of all, the water starts to fill up anyway. It starts to run across the bottom of the bath. And then down the other end of the bath, he saw a spider. Have you ever found one of those in your bath? There are two kinds of people in this world, those that hate spiders and those that scream in terror at spiders. So you can work out which one you are. And normally what happens is you think, oh, good, this is a good way to get rid of the spider. We'll just let the water come there, then we'll turn the taps off and all swish away and I won't even have to touch the thing. Well, in that moment, this pastor, he, he reached down into the bath. He, he just, somebody just touched him. He put his finger down and he caught that little spider and he picked him up out right before this deluge of hot and cold water got to it. And as he did that, the voice of God spoke to him inside and said, and that's just what I've done for you. And that's just what I've done for you. See, to to God, we must look like a tiny spider. He is so much bigger and so much greater than, than human beings. And yet, in his compassion and mercy, he gets us right at the moment before the very worst happens to us and rescues us like that. That's what compassion is. And that's who God is. And that's how he is with us. Now, if you've read the book of Jonah, it's a strange concoction of a book. There's four chapters in it. Three of them, well, in the first two, Jonah is struggling with God. He he doesn't want this new vision. So he does his best to run away and he catches a ship somewhere and so on. Then he's trapped inside this fish and he's praying uh, right at the moment of death for God to... He understands God has a heart to save people after all, and that's the kind of heart he should have. And then chapter 3, he picks up the new vision, goes to this city, preaches to them, and he's just one day in, and already he impacts the whole city. And we said in the population of its day, that's one in every 500 people on earth is in that city. And in a day, because he's different and transformed by God, he manages to reach all of them. So we end up chapter three, job done. Jonah's turned around, the city's turned around, God has rescued and saved these people. These people have stayed off a terrible uh, uh, judgment that's going to come their way because they're so awful by their own admission. They're full of violence and godlessness. They can see that. So why do we have chapter four? It's like it kind of spoils the story. Sort of the guy's got the girl. The world has been saved, they're riding off into the sunset, and then we rewind a bit and we do some other part of the story. So we have chapter 4 where Jonah is in this incredibly upset, bad mood. What's that got to do with the success we've just heard about in chapter 3? And here's what's happened with Jonah. For all the praying and repenting and getting straight he did inside the belly of the fish, for all the new vision he picked up in chapter 3 and the preaching he did with those people and for all the good stuff he did with them, he's still not where God wants him to be. So today we're going to go behind the curtain and just draw the veil back and find out why. Let me read to you the, the story. This is Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, this is the city of Nineveh, and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this just what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, that is what I tried to forestall by running away to Tarshish, that's Spain. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I think he was still hoping for that to rescue me, I'm sure. Jonah, um, the Lord God had provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. 
Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've, not been, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their hand from their left, and also many animals, and am I all right, Dave? Good. So, on the outside, Jonah has lined up with God. On the inside, he still hasn't. And for God, that's not enough. We knew a preacher one day, he put this in a book, and this is a problem being a preacher's kid. If you're a preacher's kid, your dads tell stories about you. I'm not going to do that about my own children today. I'm going to do about somebody else's, none of yours. But this preacher's kid is, is in church, and he is not behaving. And so his dad says to him, sit down. And he won't sit down. He says, sit down. He won't sit down. In the end, about three or four times he asked him, in the end, the kid said, sat down. He said to his dad, I'm still standing up on the inside. <laughs> and that, that is the human condition. We can comply on the outside and do what's asked of us, but inside we can still be standing up. Inside we can still be making our passive, rebellious attempt. I may be eating the mushrooms, mum, but I'm still hating every mouthful or whatever it is that uh, caused you to be like that. Now, when we get into that situation where we're doing things on the outside, but our hearts don't line up with it, there's a special word for it. It's called... religion. It's called unreality, insincerity, and do you know what? It ultimately leads us to defeat. We can't stay one person on the inside and another person on the outside forever. It catches up with us. It might take weeks, months, or years, but eventually it will get to us. My father worked with a guy once, and this, he came home and he said, the strangest thing happened at work today. He said, this guy, who's the meekest, gentlest, nicest guy you can imagine, just suddenly exploded at work. And we found out for years all kinds of issues have been in his life, and he'd been trying to cover them up and cover them up, but they'd just been growing and growing. Listen, everything in us is growing. Did you know that? Nothing stays where it is unless it's dead. And poke the person next to you and say, are you alive? Okay, I think they are. If you're alive, if you're alive, it's growing. It's growing. You can't stop it growing. Have you ever seen the, the paving slabs in the city? Everything they try, there's still a bit of grass growing up somewhere, isn't there? How does it manage that? There's some little weed gets in somewhere, and there it is. It manages to break through the tarmac, break through the concrete. It's, it's there growing, defying all attempts to pull it out or trample it or weed kill it. It's still there, and that's the same in our lives. If there's something there, it will grow. You can't keep it where it is. The only thing you can do is deal with it properly and root it out. So Jonah has done this great ministry... And God says to him, look, Jonah, great ministry, but I'm interested in you. I'm interested in the person you are. I've still got to get you in the right place with me. I this microphone now, the name of Jesus, it will behave itself. No, they're going to give me another one. Okay, it's being, it's being retired. Dave is, Dave is going to fix either me or the microphone or both. Right. Thank you, Dave. You heard that. He'll be back like Arnie. Right. So, if we are trying hard on the outside, but inwardly we're carrying something else, and we're not dealing with that, there's another special technical Bible word for that, and it's called a Pharisee. Ooh. Now, if you're used to Bible things, you will know who the Pharisees were. But just to remind you, or if you ever did this at school, if you still do those religious education lessons, the Pharisees were a, a religious group of people in Jesus' day who read their Bibles, but were one thing on the outside, 
but something different on the inside. They couldn't make their insides and outsides line up. They carried things around inside them that eventually led to their defeat. And Jesus has lots of run-ins with them. We'll find out why in a second. In the meanwhile, just talk nicely with your neighbor because I'm just going to be reconnected here. Do you think Jesus had this much trouble or did you? He didn't need a PA, didn't need a PA system, did he? That, that's the thing. I mean, let's try that. Dave, you were doing an amazing... How about that? Wow. Why is it... that Jonah, even after being a powerful ministry is not lined up with God on the inside as well as on the outside. I've got two points for you today, and the first one tells you why that. And here it is. The first point is this. Jonah justifies. Jonah justifies. The reason he is something different inside of him than on the outside is because he justifies himself. He justifies himself to himself, and he justifies himself to God. He thought he was right. Now, I know that's nobody here, because we're all humble and very uh, good with stuff like this. But you know, there are actually people in the world that think they're right. Usually they end up in politics or something like that. Um, And there's no shortage of them. But most of us, we don't think we're right, do we? We're very humble, we're happy to be told that's not the right view or that's not the right opinion, that's not the right way to do that. I can see by your faces you're with me in this 100%. Jonah thought he was right. And he tries to present himself as being right to an expert. Now, I don't know if you've ever got yourself in this situation. I did once. Very, very embarrassing. I still cringe about it, but I'm going to uncover myself and tell you what I did. I thought I knew what I was doing. So I bought this joystick and throttle for the, for, the, for the computer in those days when I was not properly a Christian and used to play computer games. Any of you like that, you can repent with me now. And so I used to fly this airplane on the computer. Well, I thought I knew a thing or two. I could land a jumbo jet, you know, and, and, and these sort of things and take off on and off from the aircraft carrier. So I was with this group of people, and we were talking about this, and I was talking about flights and flaps and elevators and angle of attack, and the guy was a pilot, wasn't he? I felt so stupid at the end of it. I thought, oh, my, I've just mouthed off all that stuff, and it's all theoretical nonsense. Compared, This guy actually really flew that. He, he was a bomber pilot for the RAF. I felt about this small. It's embarrassing when you present yourself to an expert who really is the expert, and you present yourself as the expert, and you're not. Well, this is what Jonah was like with God. And this is what we can be like with God. We can present ourselves like we know that we're in the right. And Jonah thought he was right, and he tries to present himself to himself. I'm right, aren't I? I know I'm right. I mean, he nearly died in the belly of that fish before he had to say, well, maybe I'm not right. Maybe God is the God of salvation who does save people. Okay, okay, okay. Jonah actually thinks God is in the wrong. Now, you've never met anybody like that. There's no such thing out there, is there, really? But there are, apparently, theoretically, some people who think God is wrong and they're right. He actually says, in, 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 where we read it out in chapter 4, you know, the, the Hebrew there actually says, or the original language actually says, he accused God of being wicked and evil. That's how strong it is. It uses the word for wickedness there. How could God, who is so good and saves all those people, be wicked and evil? But that's how it seemed to Jonah. Now, even though Jonah was wrong, he thought he was right, and he was prepared to tell God so. Now, what makes us right or wrong before God? Jonah was wrong because he had the wrong character. He was wrong because in nature and character... He was not like God. And it doesn't matter if we're right about the facts. If our character and nature isn't like God, 
then we disqualify ourselves even when we've got the facts right. Being right about the facts does not justify us. Being right about the facts doesn't make us right before God. When we are not like Jesus in character, we are plain wrong, no matter how right we are about the facts. I'm going to cover myself again here today. This is a story I tell on marriage encounters. But one day, I was um, in a small dispute with Sally, and of course I was right. And God spoke to me and said, there's two ways to be right here. You can be right about the facts or the right kind of person. Which one do you want to be? And I thought, oh, dear Lord, I'm so concerned with being right about the facts. I'm probably wrong about those two. But I've forgotten that I need to be the right kind of person. That's the way we need to be right. Listen, that has implications for our marriages. It has implications for our relationships at church, our families. It has implications for our relationship at work. Are you trying to be right about the facts? Are you trying to justify yourselves? Are we trying to justify ourselves? Or are we trying to be the right kind of person? Here's a statement. Think about this. I'd rather have a person who was wrong in judgment but right in spirit than someone who was right in judgment and wrong in spirit. I'd rather have a person who was right, wrong in judgment but right in spirit than someone who was right in judgment and wrong in spirit. How many times have you seen people on the TV under some sort of political banner or other arguing their case and you think, well, they might be right about the facts, but they just do not appeal to me as a person. They just seem so off. I don't want to follow that person. I don't want to vote for them, even if they're right about how much money we've spent on this or what, what this should be done. Rightness of spirit is really really important and we trust rightness of spirit because in the end rightness of spirit will allow correction and we'll get there but wrongness of spirit will reject all correction and won't get there in the end so jonah is wrong in spirit he says but to joe says in the bible but to jonah this seemed very wrong and the words there as we said it means this was wickedness and evil he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Spain. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. He's right about God. God is slow to anger. He is full of compassion. He does want to forgive. He does want to rescue people. All of that is true, and yet Jonah is incredibly wrong. He's wrong in himself because he justifies himself. And then he comes to the wrong conclusion. I should die. Listen, that is never the right conclusion. God puts you on this earth, and he means you to be here for all the days he's given you. It's never, ever, ever right to think I'd be better off dead. And if we do, that is not the voice of God speaking into your life. That is the voice of the enemy who would love to destroy your life and take it away. And if you've thought that, Actually, you need to repent a bit and tell God, I'm sorry I ever thought that. Thank you for giving me life. I want to hang on to every day you've given me. Because if you wish it on yourself, you open the door for more trouble to come into your life. And I'll leave it at that. God wants you to live. You have a purpose, a calling, and a job to do from him. And he means you to stick around until that job is done. And he knows when to take you. Don't ever think about taking yourself. Don't ever think for a moment, I'd be better off dead, or even worse, they'd be better off dead. Listen, that isn't how God works. Jonah is way, way out of line here. He is wrong. Now, the Pharisee justifies themselves. This is what the Bible says. Luke 16, 15 Jesus said to, he said to them, that's Jesus talking to the Pharisees, Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. When we argue our case and insist on being right, we're being like the Pharisees. We are justifying ourselves. We don't need to. If anybody needs justifying, God will do it for us. 
But if we have this in us that we have to be seen to be right and save face, well, this is what it goes on to say. What people value highly is detestable in God's sights. People value highly saving face and looking good. Let me tell you, Jesus did not choose that way. When you are on the cross nailed there, you do not look good. It's shameful and awful. Jesus carried all of that shame on the cross for us so that we don't have to be like that. People might value highly sticking to your guns and being right all the time. That's not how the Bible works. You don't have to save face. God will cause you to save face if he wants you to. But a humble heart is the right way to be before God. If we need to make apologies, we need to make apologies. You know, I went to India uh, back in 2002, and I had to speak in a church in Mumbai. And um, I was telling them some of my story and how I came into existence. Thank I owe my existence to India. Did you know that? The reason I'm here is because of India. Did you know that? My father was a soldier in India. He was bitten by a mosquito and got malaria. He was back in this country and he fell off his motorbike because he had another relapse with malaria. He was on the way to the chemist to get some medication. He never got there. He fell off his motorbike, shivering and shaking with the malaria. He was picked up off the street by a woman who helped him and then he married her. That was my mother. So that's how India got me here. One, bite in, one mosquito bite in India got me here today. So if you don't like my preaching, blame India, okay? Those of you from India, we love having you here. I have a special affection, affinity for you because your nation, by a strange series of events, gave rise to me. So I'm very grateful. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, why did I get to tell you that story? You've gone and distracted me now. It's all your fault. Yes, I was preaching in Mumbai, and I said something, and this whole commotion went up around the church. And I said to the pastor, what have I said? I thought, have I done some cultural terrible mistake? When you go to another country, you're always terrified you're going to say something or do something which is perfectly acceptable in your own culture, but it's completely unacceptable in a new culture. Have I made some gesture? Have I said some phrase? What have I done? And the pastor said to me, I said, oh, Clive. You said something they are not very used to hearing. You told a story, and in the story you said you apologized to your wife. This is why all the men are shocked. <laughs> Apparently, Indian men don't apologize to their wives much. Indian men, you're in Britain now, apologize to your wives frequently. <laughs> all right, so I'm preaching to the Indian men here. If you want to have a happy marriage in England, just repeat these words frequently. I was wrong. <laughs> And you will have a wonderful life, I promise you that. Is that right? Can I hear that from the women and the ladies? In fact, that works for all husbands in any nation. I was wrong. It's a good... We don't need to justify ourselves. I was wrong is a brilliant line. It solves so many of life's problems. Jonah justified himself. Now, there was a preacher in our country called George Whitfield. He was in the country at the same time as John Wesley. And George Whitfield always used to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus everywhere he went. And he did it with two points. And here they are. I'm just going to listen for you. I'm not going to preach one of his sermons because of time. This is what George Whitfield used to preach. Point number one, repent of your sins. Oh, I'm not telling you that. This is George Whitfield. I wouldn't stand here and tell you to repent of your sins, would I? Well, maybe I would. Anyway, George Whitfield said... Repent of our sins. That's the first thing to do. And of course, he's right. Our sins will chase us all the way to hell, even if we think we're right. It's the only way we can come to God is by turning from our old life and our sins. Great, well, you can end your message there, can't you? But George didn't stop there. Point number two is repent of being right. Repent of all the good things we do that we think justify us. Well, I don't do that. Therefore, I'm all right like this. I mean, I'm not a sinner like this person over here. I don't drink like them or support Sunderland or something terrible like that. <laughs> I, I, I'm a decent person compared to that. I'm reasonable. Listen. Our good deeds, the things we do right are our enemies in some ways because they give us a reason to justify ourselves and be an excuse 
for not doing what God's after us for. Because I read my Bible regularly, I don't need to go and talk to that person over there about the love of God. Because I go to church on Sunday morning, that will do. I don't need to go to a, a city group in the week. Because I was nice to my husband this week and made him his favorite dinner, I can lose my temper at him now and he'll have to forgive me. See, our good deeds become the very thing that we seek to justify ourselves with. We use them as currency to say, well, God, I gave this much, therefore I expect this much back. No wonder Whitfield preached those two points. And the first point, everybody was, well, that's what we came here for, to listen, to be told we're, we're sinners, and yes, we should repent. But he shocked the crowds in England in the 18th century by saying, now you've repented of your bad deeds, now repent of your good deeds, the, thing you, the things you rely on. The Bible says this in the book of Isaiah. It says, Isaiah 64, 6, all our good or righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You would never go to have tea with the queen in your worst clothes or your gardening gear. But the minute we start to justify ourselves and present ourselves to each other or to God with our good deeds, that's what we're doing. We're going for tea with the queen in our worst clothes ever. Repent of our sins, repent of our good deeds. That's what you came to hear at church this morning, wasn't it? A nice, encouraging message about... Oh, never mind, let's go on to the next point. Seriously, though. Jonah justified himself. And because he did that, he didn't have this heart of compassion that God had. So that's my first point. The second point is this. God gives. Jonah justifies. God gives. What does God give? This is an easy question, and I'm after an easy answer. What does God give? Forgiveness, grace, mercy, life, strength, all of these things, that's all correct. God gives all of those things. I want it in a simple wrap-up phrase. God gives compassion, life, and I'll, tell you, I'll make it much more practical than that for you. A plant. <laughs> Who's your cell leader? Oh, it's me, isn't it? I've got some work to do here. Plant. God gives one of the most precious things a person can ever have in life. That's good. A second chance. A second chance. There's a man, he was a soldier. He became the head of all the British armed forces and then he was promoted to NATO. He became the head of all the NATO land forces during the 1980s. General, and he was a sincere Bible-believing Christian. During the Second World War, he had three men brought in front of him for gross misconduct and failure. Four men are in a tank. He was in charge of this whole tank regiment in the desert in Egypt. And they brought these men to him under a military charge. Their neglect and their poor performance had cost the tank commander his life. He was killed as a result of their bad soldiering and bad performance. The three of them carried the responsibility for the death of their leader. And so these men were brought to this general, his name was John Hackett, and they said, well, he's charged with, they're charged with a gross misconduct and incompetence and the death of a, their, their leader. And they were guilty, and they admitted so. That was the first thing they did right. They didn't justify themselves. Now, General Sir John Hackett's got a problem here. What does he do with three men who are found guilty? This is a war situation. They are able to do what they did. They can drive the tank and fire the gun and point it in the right direction, hopefully. Does he put them in prison? But we need tank crews. We're losing them. They can't do any fighting there. Does he give them other duties like peeling potatoes and all those stories you hear about the army of those days? 
Because that wastes what they are in skill. He said, the problem I had was, if I want to reinstate them and put them back in a tank, who's going to want to be their commander in charge? Would you want to drive with them? They got the last guy killed. It's a bit like being a driving instructor, isn't it? If you live to tell the tale. I tried to teach one of our children to drive. I lasted four lessons. I sent them all to driving school after that. I won't tell you who that one was, but it was the oldest. <laughs> and the worst of it was, when they did this terrible death-defying maneuver, and I said, that was terrible. I said, well, you would have done that. <laughs> and I said something about being a leader in the church. We complain for years that our disciples are bad disciples. And actually, they're very good disciples. They do everything we do. I'm sure Mr. Miyagi would say, no such thing, bad student, only bad teacher. So, General Sir John had a problem. What does he do with his tank crew? Nobody else would want them. So he took his three, the three guys out of his tank and gave them to somebody else. He said, you will become my tank crew. Think about the risk he took there. With a track record like that, I... I'm going to take you on as my crew. I'm going to put my life in your hands and pray you never do that again. He said, man will love you if you give them a second chance to come back from a big mess up and a big mistake. Well, I'll tell you this, God is even bigger than that. That's how God is. That's what God gives. He gives a second chance to all of us. And by the way, we are responsible for the death of his son. So we're just like that tank crew. And now he says, okay, I'm going to go out with you as my crew. And you're going to drive this thing forward. And under my direction, we're going to go places together. He said, actually, General Sir John said, I wasn't taking a risk at all. I, I knew those guys would be so grateful for a second chance that they would do well for me. And when God treats us like this, the same response is how we should be. I'm going to do well for you because you give me a second chance when I was responsible for so much, including the death of your son. Wow, that's the compassion of God. That's what God gives. That's being right in character and right like God. And Jonah wasn't like that. Didn't have that about him inside. The big difference between Jonah's character and God's character is all summed up in that one word, compassion. God was compassionate. In our city groups this week, there's going to be more to study on that word. This Bible study is going to end here in a moment, but it's going to go on from there in our city groups and so on. Jesus says this to the Pharisees who didn't have that compassion in their heart because they were so busy justifying themselves like Jonah. He said, Matthew 9.13, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Compassion gives a second chance to those who failed so badly the first time, or many times. One morning, I sat up here in this room. We were having a prayer meeting some years back in the church. It was very early in the morning. It was winter, just gone six o'clock. It was very dark in those dark winter mornings. And there's a knock at the door just after a few minutes of starting. And in comes one of our oldest church members in those days. His leg was bandaged and he couldn't walk properly on it. He caught a bus from where he lived to the center of town, walked all the way up the ice on the street, he was actually sort of pulling the leg behind him like this on the ice just to get to a prayer meeting. His name was George or Geordie Monkman. 
He died when he was 90, and we had the privilege of saying our goodbyes to him. Halfway through those 90 years, he was lying in the gutter, an alcoholic, a drunk, the most terrible state, paralyzed. His life was a mess. His family life was a mess. Like my father, he'd actually been a soldier in India. And as Geordie was lying there in the gutter and his life a mess, his spiritual life a mess, his family life a mess, two women came along. And they didn't leave him there. They were filled with compassion for him. They picked him up out of the gutter. And you would not want to touch him from what he told me about the story. He was a mess physically, just lying there. And they took him to the meeting. And the pastor laid hands on him and prayed for him. And in that moment, he became instantly sober. And he found Christ that day through the compassion of those women and then the compassion of God giving him a second chance, he gave his life to Jesus. And he never touched another drop. And he had the strength of character at 90 years old to pull, drag a leg up the road in the ice. He had no shoe on it, it was just a sock. He got into the meeting. I I said, Geordie, you shouldn't come. I've got to come to the prayer meeting. Geordie, you shouldn't be dragging yourself out on a morning like this. Especially when all the young men, they're 20. It's too cold, Pastor, and I'm too sleepy. Seriously, there's something you can learn from the previous generation about stickability and grit. I was impressed. I thought I'd made a sacrifice, but it was nothing compared to him. That's the power of compassion on your life. When you're given a second chance, it does something inside of you to make you respond differently to every opportunity you get to do it right when you didn't do it right before. And Geordie did it right. And now, like Dr. Thompson, he's gone to be with the Lord. We thank God for him. He's a great example. Finally, to say, when I first heard about the work of MCI, Mission Charismatic International in Bogota, it was from one of our church leaders. And I'll repeat this again. This is what he said about it. He'd been to a weekend. And he said, I've been to something that's so impacting, it may change the whole way we do church. And oh, oh, such a heart and compassion for people. When he said that, I thought, God, I want to be part of a church like that that is radically different. Such a tender, compassionate heart for people. I want to have that kind of heart too. I don't want to be like Jonah. I don't want to be full of myself, justifying myself as an excuse. I often think back, would I have stopped and picked Geordie up off the street that day? I'd like to think I would. But a big part of me tells me I might have been just like everybody else and walked past. And not had the compassion that those two godly women had and that God had for him. So, there is a basic value and heart at the center of the vision we want to follow, and it's this. And you've heard a set from here before, and I want to remind you, passion for God, compassion for the lost, or compassion for people. Passion for God, compassion for the lost or for people. Is that me? Would I like that to be me? Well, we can choose today by a simple choice and act of the will. If we want to be like that, we have to do two things. Remember what George Whitfield said? Repent of our sins and repent of our good deeds. And then choose this as our deep down fundamental value, that I will be a person who has passion for God and compassion for people, especially those who are lost 
like Geordie was that day. Thank God those two women had compassion on him. Thank God they weren't like Jonah. Thank God they didn't justify themselves and say, I shouldn't be touching people like that. Health and safety, risk assessment, whatever it is that we have these days. They had the heart of compassion. That, by the way, is how you win a person. It's how you win a city. Such a tender heart of compassion for the lost. I invite us all to pray. Just close your eyes. Just think about that fundamental value. Passion for God. Compassion for the lost people. How much is that me? Is there more that I could be in both of those ways? Passionate for God, compassionate for people. Father, I want to thank you that for every one of us here today, you have compassion on us. Your heart is big towards us, and you give us all, not just a second chance, but a third chance, a fourth chance, a 55th chance, a 1,976th chance, and even more than that. You're so compassionate, Lord. You give beyond what any human can give another chance to get it right with you. And thank you, Lord, there is a chance here today, right now, to get it right with you. Lord, I pray now we'll feel the sense of your arms around us, your compassion towards us, your heart towards us, that like that spider in the bath, like Geordie in the gutter, you will pick us up out of the difficulties and trouble we're in in life and put us in a secure place, a better place. You will rescue us, Lord, and give us another go at life, but in a whole new and successful way. Lord, I pray right now we'll be feeling your closeness and your compassion coming to us. There is another chance. There is another chance in God. There is another opportunity to drive that tank, to go home without being drunk to escape the water in the bath. There is another chance in God. Thank you. I'm going to invite you to, to, to respond in one of two ways this morning. The first one is, if you feel you need another chance in life, whether you've never asked Jesus into your heart, or if you have, but somehow it's just all gone wrong, I just want to invite you to stand before God as a sign of saying, God, please give me another chance. Please help me now. So if you've never asked him into your life before or you've asked him into your life, but you know there's another chance, you know it's not gone well. You want to be set back up straight in life and in God. Now's your chance. Anybody wants to stand? God loves you. God cares about you very much. Yes. Lord, I thank you. There is always a second chance in you. And I thank you for every one of these precious people standing today. Right now, where they feel the loving arms of the Father around them. Just whispering reassurance into those ears, into their ears. It's okay. You can come back to me today. My love and my mercy and my forgiveness are here for you now. God, I pray your compassion and forgiveness will be with them right now. Your second chance will be ministering to them right now. And even while they're standing, I want to ask any of the rest of us, if you feel you need less justifying, more compassion, if you feel your insides and your outsides are not really lining up, If you know that 
you're not the right kind of person in this situation in that before God, then I want to invite you to stand as well. If you want to do something about that today, you want God to touch you and help you with that. Thank you. Jesus. Father, I want to pray for every one of us standing now that we will throw off that cloak of being Pharisees, of trying even, but not really measuring up on the inside. Lord, I pray that honesty and truth will come to us on the inside, that the character and nature of Jesus will be poured into our hearts now, that the desire to be like him and react and respond like he does, to be the right kind of person, far more important than being right about the facts. Lord, I pray, help us to be right like you wanted Jonah to be right, to have the right heart and the right response towards others and you. Lord, I pray, touch everyone standing now with your forgiveness, your help, your strength to be different, your power to be transformed and changed. Holy Spirit, would you come now and minister power to change on the inside and line up with you. Grace to be different in the heat of the moment. Strength to overcome when an argument could break out and instead be a peacemaker. To rather be wrong than to be the wrong kind of person. To be right in spirit in all situations. Lord, come to us now and minister that to us as we minister to you in Jesus' name.